Listener Production. Group, you are listening to episode 155 of the Howie Games Part B, featuring legendary US sports broadcaster, Mr. Jim Nance. Onwards, I say. So, I had Adam Scott on this podcast for the 100th episode, and he was telling me all the rules of the green jacket and taking me behind the scenes at the Masters from a broadcaster. Is there, like, once you're in the butler cabin, and those that watch the Masters know what we're talking about, but those that don't, you need to go and have a look at it. Jim basically welcomes the, the amateur and, the, and the, the man in charge of Augusta and then the, the previous winner and hands the jacket um, to the current winner, and Jim does all this. It's For me, it's the highlight of the whole Masters. Please have a seat, gentlemen. Thanks. I know Jim has a few questions for you. Yes, I do. Thank you, Billy. Let's begin with the amateur who dazzled us all this week, the youngest competitor. In what, what's the protocols and the process? Like, what is it externally? We only see in it. What is the butler cabin externally? Is it a cabin? Is it a shack? What is it? It's one of the cottages. It's named after for a railroad the tycoon, a gentleman named Butler. People have actually right. come up to me in, in the past and said, is that where the butlers stay at Butler Cabin? No, 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 it's not, it's not like that. Okay. It's named after a family named Butler, and it's it's uh, it's got two stories up, You it, it, and then there's one floor below, and we're in that bottom floor. You enter it from the okay. back. There's a little terrace off the back, and there's a middle living area with with a bedroom on each side of it in suite huh. bedroom with their own bath. And that's how all these cabins are set up for these golf trips. Right. So we transform that living area into a studio. Literally they take the panels out of the ceiling and hang lights, a lot of lights, huh. and they take all the furniture that's in there out. Uh, and they actually repurpose some of the chairs, those chairs that we sit in have, been there as long as I've been there now. Um, and it, it's been the site of the coronation, if you will, since 1966. They moved it over from the Jones Cottage, which is right off the okay. 10th tee. Where th- this but- butler cabin is uh, it's kind of off the par three course, about 200 yards from the 18th tower. And I feel as the as the as the host of that presentation, a, a, a lot of stress to be honest, because uh, you're oh. waiting for the champion to sign the card and and get transported there, and there's nowhere to turn. Faldo's been released from from the 18th. I've made my way to the cabin this year. I actually called almost all of Sunday from off of a monitor down in the cabin. I didn't even go outside, so I didn't have to make the move from the tower to the cottage for the presentation. But you're waiting and you're talking to yourself and you're going through leaderboards and highlight packages. And uh, you got Chairman Ridley. We'd like to welcome the world to Butler Cabin. What a pleasure it is to be with Augusta National Chairman Fred Ridley. And we were here five months ago. That was memorable and so was today. And you have, as you mentioned, you have the low amateur and you have the previous year's champion. They're all in place waiting for the new champion to make their way. And sometimes it's a five, six, 10 minute fill and you're all alone and there are no commercial breaks. And and then it's always been explained to me that they're also at that point getting all of the world feeds lined up. 
By yes. that, I mean the, the, the Korean broadcasters are going to take that one feed. They don't redo it for every country's feed. And it's going to 206 countries, last I heard, and territory. No pressure, Jim. I know. No all pressure, of a sudden, Jim. you know, I, I just, in my head, I envision uh, engineers somewhere taking plugs and pulling stuff and patching it <laughs> over here. They're like, all right, we got, we, we've, we've got Germany's in and we've got, okay, the UK is in, Australia's all set. Uh, wait, what, what about, uh, yeah. What about France? No, no, we pull that one in, put this over here. They're all lined up now. I've actually used that line. I may have even used it this year, waiting for all the broadcast feeds to be lined up and patched in. Uh, whatever, I'm just buying time, tap dancing, trying to get to uh, Scotty Chef. We're entering the booth, uh, entering the butler cabin. But then uh, all of a sudden, everyone's in place, and uh, we go through um, through, a, through a ceremony that's kind of a time-honored tradition to the masters. And uh, you're going to sign off with uh, someone donning that green jacket with the thrill of a lifetime. And I, I clearly remember when Adam won. Of course, he won down at the 10th hole, which also meant yes. it was more fill time for me because we got to get him <laughs> all the way from 10 back. But it was such a thrill. I, had, As we said at the top of this pod, uh, I had been to Australia in 2011. So this was 2013 when Adam won. Mm. Such a lovely guy. He's such a good man, and I, I was thrilled to see the you know the green jacket in, in the hands of an Aussie for the first time. And all I could do is just think about the history of it. And Adam, what a riveting, incredible day! And at long last, you are a major champion, and Australia is going to be wearing the green jacket here in just a moment. How do you put in the words how you finished this today with the birdie at the 72nd and then the birdie to win it on the second playoff hole? I, I don't know how that happens. <laughs> you know, it, it seems a long way away from a couple years ago. Here. All those great golfers, many of whom yeah. I've gotten to know, who never got there, who never had the chance to wear it, who you thought would be one day a Masters champion, Adam would be the first one. Actually, when he made the putt, I don't know if you got our feed and our call of that, but when he made the putt, yeah, my voice actually cracked on the air on the winning call. I think I think I said, there it is! But it yeah. was, there was a screech in there by Adam, pure joy and excitement for for him making it. And um, yeah, that was uh, that was a very sweet moment. Changer. So what you've seen these guys come in when it's the first time, when they've lived out their dream, when they come in and they're, they're getting, I'm sure they're getting wired up with a microphone, like how are they? Are they overwhelmed? Are they ecstatic? Can they not believe it? Like you're seeing their winning emotion before we do for that period where the techs will be getting them all ready to go and is their head exploding that they've just, like in Adam's case or or Scotty Scheffler now, lived out their entire golfing dream in that moment? Like what a privilege to be there, Jim. It is. I mean, it feels like uh, someone's being knighted. It, it, the moment is just so big for anybody that plays the game and you dream of having a moment like that. But I think at that point, they're honestly, I think they're in shock. I think they don't actually even, they can't even feel anything. They can't get a sense of it. It's their mind has got to be racing in a million different directions. But I will tell you this, 
when you see Tiger come in five times, not not the fifth time, the fifth time in 2019, that was yep. one with appreciation all over, written all over him. But maybe the second, third, and fourth time, I saw in him relief. You know, he had huh. the weight of people expecting him to win. I don't know where to start with this one, but I guess we'll go back to 16, and I have to ask you about the shot at 16 and how this one would rank in your career. Where would it stand? At the time, probably one, one of the best ones I've ever hit. And I just saw a face that, that, that expressed, like, yeah, I've done it. You know, I, I, that, that weight's coming off of me. Well, Tiger, this day started with a two-way tie, and you got a very comfortable margin early. What was the game plan coming out today? The game plan was to shoot under par on both nines. That's what I, I had intended. But others, Phil Mickelson winning for the first time a major. That was Phil's first ever major win in 04, first of six, first of three times uh, winning the green jacket. He had been dogged with the question for years, would he ever win a major? Because he, yeah. he waited. It, it didn't happen until he was 32. Phil Mickelson, this is the day you've longed for. And so many of your fans, your fans all across the country, have longed for this day and... Uh, you know, you had this smile on your face all day long, particularly coming down the stretch. The emotions right now, you're feeling. I, I kept saying to myself all day that this is my day, that uh, this, was, this was the day, and, and uh, it's an amazing feeling. Best player to never win a major, and then it got passed on to Sergio, didn't it? That's that? right, and that, there's a, another great example. You know, the most interesting, I think, just the vibe I've gotten off of uh, one of these players it's surprising would be my man uh, Faldo, you know, stoic as a as a competitor, yeah, uh, all, uh, wearing uh, a very regal look about him when he played, but uh, the, in this suit of armor, very proper in the whole thing, and uh, expressionless most of the time. And when he came into the cabin that first time, I looked across; he's sitting four feet across from me. I saw tears in his eyes. I saw he was just on the brink of like really bawling. And I was shocked to see how overcome with emotion he was. And that was in 89. So I chalked that up to just being first time experience and the whole thing. And um, he was choked up, but then he wanted to get a 90. And it was the same thing. Arms extended to the heavens for the second straight year. And uh, Nick, I know, uh, it's overwhelming somewhat. This is a little more emotional, this one. I, um, I really feel as if I've made history this time. You have, and you're to be congratulated. And then in 96, when he beat Greg in that, that, that final oh. round that people had yes. gone over yes. and over through it again yes. and again, uh, it, it was still there all three times. Nick showed the hmm. most outward, if you will, uh, overcome with the emotion of it. He'd be the last guy you would think, but he, yeah, he definitely would. was the one that was exuding the most uh, feel and touched by it all. I've just got one more question for you about golf, then I need to get you onto football, Jim. So um, we'll try and keep this one succinct. Preparation. You've talked about storytelling and broadcasters sit in different boats here. Some want to be so prepared and others want to have an open mind. Now, I was blown away reading your book 
when Tiger had his first win and your famous call, well, it was like 12, he won by 12 strokes, didn't he? 12 strokes? Yeah, set yeah, the Masters incredible. record. It shattered it, yep. Your famous call, there it is, a win for the ages. Now, what blew me away was you talked about the preparation that you'd done with your producers the night before to the extent that you were workshopping lines. And at that point, I think it hit me how much of a craftsman you really are as far as being the kid that wanted to tell the story. The story seems to be what your commentary is about, which is why people love it, I guess. Well, thank you for for, for that. But that that was on Saturday night. 1997, it was a foregone conclusion he was going to win the tournament. And I yes. knew that moment when he holed out on the 72nd green was going to, that that video clip would outlive us all. It's going to be yes. played back for generations. 200 years from now, when the Masters comes on the air and they put yep. that montage, that tease opening tease together, and they have clips of historical moments, that, that clip's going to be guaranteed to be in there forever. And with it, accompanying that video is going to be the little narrative. There it is, a win for the ages. Hard to believe, 21 years old. This for the record. There it is, a win for the ages. I was aware of that on Saturday night. That the moment's just so big, it transcends the Masters tournament on a lot of levels, what Tiger was about to complete. And I knew that it better be something that lives <laughs> alongside that moment and maybe even sums up what the significance was of his achievement. How do you do that in a mini sentence? How do you do that? And all those voices of my youth that I mentioned earlier, they were all alive yeah. at that point. They're, they're all gone now. And I could sense that the next day they would be watching. And they knew how I felt about them. And I wanted to make them proud. And I played these mind games that the next day they were going to be watching. And they were going to be evaluating how I handled that moment. And I felt real pressure. I felt them figuratively looking over my shoulder. And wow. I went to bed that night feeling comfortable enough by, by saying it was a win for the ages. I thought, I thought that would sum up that it's a time-tested great moment in the history of sport, not just the Masters. So I had that in my hip pocket. Now, I did have, it's funny, I loved your take on it, but I've had through the years, I've had some media folks who cover uh, my industry come up and say, hey, I know you had that line prepared. That wasn't off the cuff. Yeah, you came in already with that one, like there was something wrong with it. I said, damn right I did. How did you yeah. want me to handle it? Just sit back <laughs> and 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 go have a, a fun time of it on Saturday night and not give it a thought at all? I said, I am paid to be there to tell the story. And mm -hmm. we know he's going to win. And I don't feel like I would have been doing my job if I just would have randomly waited for the moment and had maybe, as a result, some line like, it's over. Tiger's the Masters champion. Something that's not quite as lasting as a win for the ages. It's not the historic exclamation mark that it needed, but you gave it. That's what I felt like it needed. I, I appreciate it. When I hear it now, I, I you know I, a lot of thoughts go into my mind. But most of these tournaments, 
end, you don't have that line cobbled Nine. together in your head. You've, you, you just, you kind of feel it organically. When Tiger won in 2019, I didn't have anything prepared as he was walking up the last hole. And I realized now that his children were waiting for him behind the green. I had this feeling of appreciation for how far he had come back in his life. I mean, he, he had lost so much to injury and scandal. Yes. It, he had hit some real depths. And now he had come back and his children adored him and looked up to him and his golf game had returned. And people never thought this was possible. This was, he, he was finished. He was never going to reach that height again. And I felt a sense of glory for him. It, just as a, as a father, you know, to be able to have this achievement for his children to be able to witness this for the first time. So when he knocked in, and I knew I was going to say the word glory, I didn't know how I was going to leave my lips, but I left my lips with the return to glory. This is the minute the millions around the world have waited for. Waited for years. Many doubted we'd ever see it. But here it is. The return to glory. It was more of a statement to, that I couldn't have ever thought it through, didn't have the time to think it through. But I hear it now. I think the level of my voice expresses a little bit of the hard and arduous road back that it was to that. I wasn't exclaiming, the return to glory. You know, it was more of the return to glory. Hard, yeah. labored effort to get back there with a, with a heartbeat, with an appreciation, with a gratitude that his children were there to see it. I'm probably over-dramatizing, over-emphasizing over it, but I'm proud of that one. And recently, Tiger was in the booth with me at Riviera. I think that's where he said it. I've had a couple of recent interviews with Tiger. And he thanked me for that line, which Did he really? knocked my socks off. I didn't even think he would pay attention to that. But I, maybe what he was saying is that, reflected what he was feeling too at that time. I hope so, but uh, those are tricky moments. You know, they're not all, believe me, they're not all, I'm not saying any of them are good. I don't ever evaluate my own work, but um, some of them I, I think I've hit it and sometimes I think I've missed. You know, it's it's live and 95% of the time it's organic and hasn't been thought through and you try to be a reflection of that moment. That's, that's it in short. I, I think that's the best thing about live sport is I find that, once you've said it, it's done. You can't do anything about it. There's no take 37 and the lighting's not right. You, you've got it and it's good or it's bad. So we're hearing your level of passion for what you do and your professionalism and preparation. What happens in your world, Jim, when you walk away when you're not happy on the rare occasion where, I don't know if you have an example, um, and social media is brutal now and I'm sure you get a lot of feedback from the public, on the rare occasion or on the, I don't know how hardly you judge your own work, but when you walk away and you're not impressed with what you've done, is that something that sits you with you for two minutes or two days or two weeks or two years? It lasts a long time. And, you know, we're talking the same language here. You understand it by just the fact yeah. you asked me that question. And when you try to be perfect, and you have to realize that no one is, whether it's broadcasting or life itself, whatever, it's, 
it's a hard thing to get everything exactly the way you want. But most of the time, because of the live element, you feel like there was missed opportunity, that it could have been done better. It could have been told in a, in a clearer fashion with more clarity, fewer words, whatever it might be. And you'd be surprised how often you beat yourself up. You don't need social media to beat you up. You do a pretty good job of it yourself. <laughs> yeah, uh, I get you. I get you. <laughs> uh, it's an interesting animal these days uh, in broadcasting, and that is social media. It's a, you know, I think it's changing the way people interact in in without a phone in their hand. How do you handle it, Jim? How How do you handle it? Oh, this is going to sound like a dinosaur here. Um, I no. I have zero social media accounts now. I know I could access them if I wanted to. I don't want to go there. I mean, I feel like I'm such a harsh critic that that I know when I've failed or I've given it my best, but I don't have a single social media account, including not even Facebook or anything like that. So I don't want to know. I know that it's so exposed that there's going to be negative chatter no matter no matter what you do. And I rather evaluate it on my own and the feedback that mm. that you're giving yourself. And that you're that the people that are in your universe text you or comment on. Um, I see a trend. I don't know if it's like this over in Australia, but I see too many people in broadcasting consumed with needing that feedback. If they're feeding that beast, if the beast is accepting them, well, the odds are if you're going to go down that road, you're not going to get back and return what you're looking for. It's only going to make you feel bad. Uh, you know, you have to have a little more confidence, a little more trust. So I've given a, a number of speeches at CBS seminars with everyone in the room, from the top yep. management to, to the new entry-level production people. Stay off your phones. You know, you, you, have, you have defied all odds to be in this room. There are at least a thousand people for, that want that job for every one of you that have that job. Absolutely. So trust your instincts. Don't go for some random critic. You don't even know who they are and let that distract you or influence the way you feel about yourself. I think it comes with time, Howie. I think you, you know, you know if the stars were aligned and the timing was right, the broadcast was up to the level that you wanted it to be, a standard of excellence. You know that. Yeah. Um, you don't. You don't, I, it seems so desperate to me to have really well-trained professionals feel the urge to have to cede that power of that position to some random person, they don't even know who it is, who's going to take a cheap shot and pile on and nitpick and, and belittle things that aren't even of any significance. But it's amazing. It's a lack of confidence. It's a security issue. And I think it's, I think it has to, I think, I think people in broadcasting need to really, unless you're sourcing it for news, which again, I don't source it for news. I don't, I don't go there. Uh, I think that there ought to be a moratorium on any access to phones when you're actually in the middle of a football broadcast for three hours. Why would you be looking at your phone? You've got all these screens and, mm different sources of things that could be integrated into the show, ultimately onto your canvas. That canvas, that painting is what we've been working all week on to get the right color mix, to get all the, 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 the brushes that are just right for the way we want to paint this. 
got it all lined up. So now that takes a lot of concentration to make that perfect oil painting. Yes, but you're going to the middle of this. As you're alive, you're actually going to pick up your phone and see what people are saying about you? Come on, <laughs> man. You've, you've trained when, your whole life for this. You're better than that. When you put it like that, and, and I've worked with countless people um, where at we have a quarter time in our football or we have the end of the over in cricket where I've seen close friends, broadcasting friends, look at their phone and they're up and they're broadcasting and they look at their phone and you can just see their whole demeanour change and, and you do think that to yourself. Why are you letting this affect you? Because it's some bloke from somewhere giving you a hard time that has no experience in that field. Back to Jim shortly. Now, we have featured some fantastic broadcasters on this show. When I go back and look at all those that we've featured, I count myself blessed. Go back and find them if you have some time. Dennis Cometti on episode five. Bruce McAvaney, episode 33. The recently retired Ray Rabs Warren on episode 54. Isha Gua, episode 92. F1 legend Martin Brundle, episode 93. Ian Smith, cricket calling God, episode 94. Football icon Martin Tyler on episode 111. Sandy Roberts, Sandy Roberts, episode 128. Lee Diffie, episode 130. Colonel Bob Sheridan. On episode 137, do not miss The Colonel. If you haven't heard it, go and listen to The Colonel. Greg Pickhaver, a.k.a. H.G. Nelson, on episode 10 of The Artist Series. David Bumble Lloyd, episode 144. I told you there's a few. But one of my favourite stories ever on the pod was told by the man who's known as the voice of cycling, Phil Liggett, back on episode 31. And so I moved on from the zookeeping after hitting an elephant on my bike. I rode to work every day, but I didn't know that before the public allowed in, uh, it probably still applies in most zoos, many of the animals they let out. Uh, they don't let the lions out or the predators, but I mean, the elephant's a fantastic weeding machine. You take him round the back and he'll shovel all those nettles in one hit. And so round the back of the tea hut yep. was the Indian elephant with his keeper, uh, and the keepers are in love with their animals, by the way. Of course. They, they, they're, they're kids. And the elephant was working away around the back of the tea hut. I zoomed around on my bike, hit the back of the elephant, fell off. And the, the keeper, I remember, he pulled the ear of the elephant down and said, look at this silly sod. And the elephant just trumpeted. It was unbelievable. Anyway, my bike was bent. That is the great one. Phil Liggett about elephants. Back on episode 31 of the show. Back to Jim. Jim, we need to talk about the NFL. Now, I've looked at the Super Bowls. Due to the American uh, broadcasting system, it, it rotates through various broadcasters. So you kicked it off in 2007. Welcome back to CBS's coverage of Super Bowl 41. It's our 16th Super Bowl on CBS. We were there for the first with Ray Scott, Jack Whitaker, Frank Gifford, and Pat Summerall. And a pleasure to be with you tonight. Last you. thought before kick. Well, my thought is, Jim, in a big game like this where nerves can be a factor it's always better to start on defense so you've done 10 13 16 19 21 and when the super bowl ended the ball would be in the hands of tom brady i don't know why we ever think it won't you work with for someone that's not fully invested in nfl like you and tony romo are to me sport broadcasting royalty you set him the platform and he just goes and tells me what's going to happen before it's going to happen what do you see here tony oh, i thought they were going to run the ball to the right now he's going back left with the run there you go to the left it is richard slipping through tackles jim i got five dollars this is a run to the left 
I gotta pay now as it's Henry. Stepping out. Preparation for a Super Bowl. You get the extra time than you do in in the regular season. How much work and what type of work and how much of an embedding within the actors on the stage, the players, the coaches, do you spend to get that Super Bowl call right to tell your story? That's a tough one. It, it is, Howie, because I want the broadcast to feel like every other broadcast during the season. And if you're trying to treat it like it's something more, then yep. why weren't you giving us that effort on week 10 of the regular season? But mm-hmm. we do have more time. It's usually a, an extra week to prepare for the Super Bowl. I find that I'm better suited to go back. There's a golf event on our air that that middle week. It used to be San Diego, now Pebbles, and that middle week between the championship games and the Super Bowl. I want to keep working. I want to approach the Super Bowl week the same way we always have. Um, you have more bells and whistles, more replay machines, more cameras. Everybody's trying to jam in more than they normally do. That's not healthy. Mm. It should be exactly like you do the the first week of the season. But it's not. It's not. It's not. And it's a it's a slippery slope. And, you know, there's a lot of tried and true. I don't know if you guys have these <clears throat> sayings over there, but, like, let the game come to you, whatever that means. <laughs> Let's. Uh, we, we have. I think we have one about um, utilize the noise, uh, the sounds of the game. Use the sounds of the game. What's uh, that? And again, whatever the hell that means. <laughs> I think. I think that's my boss saying, just don't talk. Yeah. Uh, the other one I love. You must have this one. Just have fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, now what does that mean? Like, if I was to no, guys, guys, I want you to go out today. Just have fun. So, yeah, sure. so let's say I'm in the booth on the Super Bowl Sunday, and I decide randomly I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to take my shirt off, <laughs> and I'm going to uh, the next on camera. I'm going to come on bare chested. Wait a minute, what the hell are you doing? This is the Super Bowl. Wait a minute, I'm so confused. You guys told me just have fun. I mean, I'm doing what you told me to do. So we have, we get just have fun, but don't stuff it up. We, we get a we get a statement after. Okay, let's not say Super Bowl then. Let's say any given Sunday to quote the famous film. Let's say a, a week ten match. Let's strip it back to your regular call. From what I gather, you don't just turn up on a Sunday Arvo, as we would call it, with a couple of team sheets. G'day, it's Jim Nance. Welcome to, you know, wherever we're playing. There's a bit more to go into it than that from what I can gather. Uh, There seems to be in your sports a lot more involvement between broadcasters and teams than maybe we have the privilege of getting here in Australia. We get access to the teams. It's part of the the, uh, contract that we have, uh, it's written in that we get to visit with the coaches and players before the game. On the day? On, no, on the, it's, on the it's day usually the, the two days before, one on Friday, one on Saturday. And right. w- during COVID, we've been doing it by Zoom, but pre yep. and post-COVID, I'm assuming now post-COVID, we go back to meeting in person, Friday with the home team, which means more time away from home. So so, you're, so, you, so the game's on Sunday, yeah. you're at the venue on Friday. As bizarre as that sounds, yes. 
Wow, this is serious preparation. Years. So yeah. I, I shouldn't have cut no, you off there. So no, on Friday I, you go I, I with actually, uh, you know, as a as a father of two young children, I would yeah, uh, I, I would like to leave on Saturday for a Sunday game, but uh, it's been grandfathered in, so to speak, through the years that we go visit with the home team coach on Friday morning, like like at eight o'clock. So when I was living in Pebble Beach, I had to leave on Thursdays for Sunday Thursday. games because I'm not going to red eye it. I can't do that on a weekly basis to get to the East Coast. So, and so, how much how much intel are the coaches giving you? Are they being cagey, or are they basically laying out their playbook, trusting that you are a vault and you will only use it at the appropriate moment of the broadcast? That's that is the unwritten code of of the business. And the the more veteran coaches know and trust you, that you're never going to violate and 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 give away the information they tell you, and they'll tell you. Pretty much everything. It's a fascinating thing. You you find out what one coach is thinking on Friday, and then on Saturday yeah. you go to the visiting team hotel, and CBS rents out a a boardroom, and the wow. coaches, the coordinators, the quarterback, and a smattering of other players come in, and we talk to them about strategy and game plan. When you get finished with the two teams, Friday and Saturday, there are only four or five people in the stadium the next day who know exactly what each team's going to do. And that would be the broadcasters. Yes. Tony, yeah. Tracy Wolfson, uh, our producer, our director, and a couple of other folks that are in the room for CBS, Tommy Spencer, my longtime editorial consultant. Uh, and we know that one team is going to come in and try to run the football and just keep running the football. The other team thinks that they're going to come out and do nothing but throw the football. And you know that they don't match up. They're, they're not prepared for what is about to hit them. But you poker face it during the meetings and you hear what their strategy is. And you go in uh, with a pretty good handle on at least analytically what the game plans are. That's more in ter Tony's territory. I'm in these meetings trying to uh, procure a background story that that is more general, you know, broader themes. That's my role, but I enjoy it. I just, the travel and time away from family uh, is immense. Um, and I, I trust now that, you know, everybody's kind of more open over here now that maybe this fall we'll be back to being in place Friday morning for a Sunday game. You have seen Tiger. You've spent time with Tiger. You've seen and spent time with Tom. These are the upper echelons. They will go down as greats in the history, the annals of American sport. What separates the Tigers and the Toms from the regular all-round superstars? I think it's just a sense of perfectionism that demands that they put on themselves, the unquenchable thirst to be their best. It's never enough. Seven Super Bowls is not enough. Damn, I have to have another one. No, I'm not looking back on what I've done. You know, 15 majors is not enough. Being number one in the world for you know, a thousand straight weeks or whatever it's been at one point, it's, it's not enough. I've got to go get the next one. I've got to go get the next one. And they don't, take, they don't take any time off. By that, I mean Tiger's cut record. When he competes... He fights for every shot like no one I've ever seen. Yeah. And that's a testament to him. There are other extraordinary talents who will have one of those weeks where they shoot 76, 74 and miss the cut by five shots. That's never been Tiger. 
I mean, it's just like every every swing is a reflection on his career. It, it has to be that good. Brady's the same way. Every throw has to be so exact. And to lose, it kills them. You've heard the line before, they hate losing more than they love winning. Yes. Okay. That, that yes. I think, would define both of them. The, the hurt, the pain that comes with failing is much grander and bigger in their head than the joy of winning. I talked about earlier, Tiger coming in, the relief that I saw when he won mm. the Masters the second, third, and fourth times. It was like he was expected to. And I think that's kind of where they both are. I think that's a very similar trait. Maybe one day they'll be able to reflect. I had Tiger on an interview this year that aired pre-Masters. I don't think you guys got to see it, but it was a 25-year look back. You should YouTube it. 25 years anniversary of the win for the ages. And we take this in February. And it's the most yep. reflective I've ever seen Tiger. He came off, well, I mean, he was... He, he was extraordinary. Uh, and he did, he had uh, the first time I ever heard him nostalgic, reflective. And there was gratitude. Not that he's ungrateful, it's just he was summing up his life and his career as nostalgic. And I have never seen him that way before. It's always been about the next conquest, looking forward. What I did in the past, you know, care about that. I'm looking forward. For some reason, we were able to get into a cocoon for about an hour and a half of recording, and he got downright sentimental. It was amazing. But credit to the person that was asking the questions to provide that platform, that emotional space, Jim. Now, I always finish this show because um, I could speak to you for another three hours, but I'm sure you've got better things to do with your day. We have a lot of um, young people. We're blessed to have a lot of young people listen to this show with their parents, youngsters, uh, finding their way in the world that are wanting to achieve success in their life. You've obviously had a tremendous amount of support, but you've achieved tremendous success in your life. For the youngsters out there, they might not want to be sports broadcasters. They might want to be electricians or they might want to be golfers or they might want to be chemists. From your experiences, Jim, which are vast and wide, what advice would you give to the youngsters that are got stars in their eyes and are like you as an eight-year-old that just wanted to be a sports broadcaster? And as a father, it's a reasonably weighty question. There are no single ways to do things in life. There are many different routes to achieving, but it's about passion and talent. You'll find a lot of people in the world that have a talent for something but they don't have a lot of passion to go with it. You can think of probably a handful of golfers in just an instant that have tremendous talent, don't have the passion. And then you have people that have a whole lot of passion, but they're not gifted at anything. They haven't found their thing. So it kind of works. Most people fall into one of those two categories. Passion, lack of talent. A lot of talent, lack of passion. When you can intersect individuals, find them that have that perfect confluence of passion and talent. Now you have a chance to do something special, extraordinary. Um, but I think sometimes on the high passion, low talent meter, I think sometimes the passion, if it's really there, can develop that talent. I don't think it works in reverse. 
Mm. Um, I, th- I, I think if you lack passion, you're always going to have a hard time being your best and being able to achieve the things you want to. But if you have a natural born gift for wanting something and willing to do anything in your being to be the best, you can take a lack of natural born talent and develop it to a point where you have that great intersection of passion and talent. So be passionate about life. We get one crack at it and it moves Mm -hmm. fast. Realize that every year as the years go by, it moves so quickly. And uh, I'm just so grateful that when I was a young boy, for whatever reason, something triggered inside of me to have a passion to want to do this. And I kept trying to feed that passion. I would think about what can I do today to get me to one day be noticed by CBS and have my dream job. It was always that (laughs) one network I wanted to work for. And I went through college and I had, not to be a downer, but I had very little fun time in college. I was driven. I was passionate about trying to take every day and develop a skill that would enable me to make a run at my dream of working for CBS. And it was worth it. It was worth it. I love what I'm able to do. I'm grateful more than anything. My days begin with the same prayer of thanks every day for other things I pray for too. But I just, I I never want to lose sight that it's a gift I've been given of, of opportunity. The gift of opportunity. Worked hard for it. Nobody did give it to me, but the odds are long. You have to do whatever you can to try to get to that place you want to be. And whatever realm it is, you mention them all. And mm-hmm. I think that's the one common out common thing here, Howie, is is it has to be a lot, whole lot of internal drive to try to be that best version of yourself that you want to be. That is a wonderful answer and a wonderful way to finish this podcast, Jim. As I said at the start, we we're trying to be teeing this up for a while and as someone that works in your industry you know I'm, I, as a commentator I build one bedroom units you're building the Taj Mahal so when we're doing the same job but in very different realms but it's a it's it's a, a real treat for me and and I hope people really get something from it and get to know the story behind the voice because when we turn into the Masters or on the NFL or the Super Bowl now they'll know ah that's Jim. That's what he's all about. And it's a brilliant story, mate. And I really appreciate you sharing it with me on the Howie Games. You're a good man. I'm I'm so grateful to have this opportunity to visit with you. I'm grateful to to Baker Finch, to Ian. Ian yeah. and Jenny are wonderful, dear, sweet friends of ours. And uh they are. He kind of brokered this, so to speak. And uh it's it's been a wonderful experience. You've uh, inspired me in a lot of ways. Your questions have been very thoughtful. I've I've answered questions that I've never been asked before. So that feels thank you. That's that's a real special event. It, it, it just a comment about what you've just done. I've been able to reflect on things that no one's ever asked me before. That's hard to do. Um, so thank you for that. Inspired me enough to want to come over there and, and uh, break bread with you sometime. So when I That'd when I get back down under, I'm calling you first. It'll you be in the next. It'll taking- be in the next. Um, my children. I would say the next six to seven years. I know it sounds like a big gap, no, but no. we have Australia yeah. on our radar. We got to get them a couple more years under their belt where they can appreciate 
a trip uh, of that scope. But uh, I look forward to seeing you. Well, if you come in the winter, I'll take you to the footy. If you come in the summer, we'll go, I'll take you to the cricket. And the next time you see the great Finch, you can tell him, I've never told him this, at Coolum one day where they play the Australian PGA, I was working on the golf with him. I was the on course and I was working with him um, and Wayne Radar Riley. I'm sure you've met Radar yeah. around the traps and you would know him. And Finchie said, why don't we just play nine holes of golf? And I sat on that first tee with the Australian Open winner, Radar, on one side and the British Open winner on the other side and I was shitting myself, Jim, <laughs> just trying to get that first ball down the tee. I've never been so nervous. So tell Finchie that. Thanks, mate. I look forward to listening to the next golf coverage you're on. Uh, I look forward to the NFL season and seeing you in action with your mate Tony because it's just elite broadcasting. Stay safe. Thank you, my friend. Been a real pleasure. That is two hours I will truly treasure for a long, long time. What a wonderful, generous man with so many cool stories. Hopefully next time you're watching The Masters, you'll be smiling when you see and hear Jim. I can't thank Jim enough just for being Jim. And once again to Melissa Miller for sorting it all out and to Das for being as excited about Jim as I was. Special shout out, a special shout out to my wonderful wife, Erica, for being just that. Until next Thursday with Alex Rance, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Try, try, try Listener